Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Legal Geeks podcast. I am here, as always, with my blogging partner, Josh Gilliland. Hey, Josh, how are you? Standing by for instructions. <laughs> That's right, because tonight we are boldly going back into the Star Trek universe, which has a new story to tell if you're willing to pay CBS for their all-access online shows, which is a hurdle because of Star Trek Discovery, they did make me overcome. We'll see how long I stick with it. So anyway, we are here to talk all things Trekkie in the new Star Trek Discovery. Which is a lot of fun. I am ecstatic to have Star Trek back on TV or my iPhone or however I'm going to watch it on CBS All Access. Computer, and, yeah. And paying, you know, was it five ninety nine a month doesn't bother me. And there, there are some folks who are acting like, "How dare you!" and and you know they they think they're being pistol whipped for it. And I don't feel that way. Uh, you know, I don't want this to be the shape of things to come. I would prefer it on you know regular times. Well, on one level, this drops Sunday at five thirty Pacific, seven thirty your time, so we could actually yep. watch it together and then talk about it. So I don't mind. I'm okay with this. And it's really nice to have Star Trek music and see Star Trek again weekly. So I'm happy. I have to say I'm happy as well, too. I've been meaning to, I've been debating getting a CBS All Access for the good fight anyway and have been hemming and hawing because I just had too many dramas I was watching. But now I'm like, I get to watch the good fight, too, which looks awesome. Um, but yes, it is nice to have Star Trek back on. I do to say, you know, their what their opening—I forget what it's called—you know, they run the credits over—is visually stunning, and it's very exciting to hear kind of Star Trek esque music. But still, we're just three episodes in. It's still like is striking and just discordant to me that there's no narration there's none of the you know kind of somebody talking I would love to hear Michael kind of doing that intro over the music while the beautiful visual graphics are going so the fact that there's no um, narration for that no we're boldly going kind of thing I don't know for some reason as much as I love that intro it's still a little bit jarring to me I don't mind it while I do love the captain's pledge that's why we're here. It does give that sense of adventure, and the original music does make you stand on tiptoe to boldly go where no one has gone before. It's like, yeah, yeah, this is a different type of inspiring. And the True. detail with those opening credits is very engaging. Yes. It's, it's both simplistic and detailed at the same time. The music has nice... They are amazing. So I love it. And for me, it makes me feel good. I've been checking iTunes to see when I can get the soundtrack, and it's not (laughs) available yet because (laughs) it makes me happy. (laughs) All right, well, let's see. So we know that the opening uh, credits and music make you happy. What are your first impressions or one of your first impressions about the show? Mixed. Yeah. There are parts of it I like, and there are parts of it that make my head turn because there's like this continuity gap that they're having with ship design. Because if this is 10 years before the original voyages on the Enterprise, the original Enterprise exists at this point in time, and it's either uh, a captain by Pike or maybe Robert April, probably Pike 
just with timing. So we know the uniform should match and the, the fleet should look different. It shouldn't look post uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. So like that bothers me. We don't have <laughs> purple Klingons bother me. The fact that Klingons don't look right bothers me because they should look like what we know from the TV series. And, and while not all of them had the virus that caused the, the, you know, the forehead breakdown and that you can have different houses that still look like that, which is what happened in some of the John Byrne comics where you see both, you know, coexisting until the, you know, the cure comes about the fact that the Klingons look wrong, that they don't look like Worf, you know, that bothers me. And while I can get behind the idea that different houses live on different planets and therefore they could look just a little different, these look too alien. They don't look Klingon enough for me. Their uniform should look more like the original series. Because when you think about modern navies, we're not changing uniforms every decade. You know, when you look at pictures of our navy for the most part it's the same you know while we did yeah. have you know the the man overboard bdus that would blend in awesome so that way people can't be rescued you know, <laughs> you know for the most part our uniforms stay the same so that's in the granted you know if you go 20 years maybe 30 years you see a variation but like our dress uniforms are pretty much the same as yeah. they happen so there's stuff like that that irritates me or the why are we having holographic communications when the original series and next gen didn't do that? And we didn't see that until deep space nine where the defiant did that on occasion or the entire concept with Voyager. It's not like they had holographic emitters all over the ship for the doctor to move around. So there's stuff like that just from a fan perspective that if they're expecting fans to shell out money monthly, to watch the show and that's what they're counting on in addition to getting new fans make it fit what we expect huh. so, so that's something that just really irks me and like that's that's the extent of my fanboy rage right uh you know i do have i feel there's some inconsistencies with if spock had an adopted sister it's like, okay, Vulcan, he obviously never talked about her, just as we never heard about his half-brother, Cybok, from Sarek's first marriage. So it's like, fine, I get that. Vulcans suck at families and talk about relatives. <laughs> like, no family pictures up. You think he would have mentioned that, but no. So there's that. Uh, and so, like, those issues kind of irk me just a touch, that... On one level, I could have preferred this story set in between the original series and Next Gen, since there's that 80-year gap. Yeah. Like 40 years right in the middle, because, you know, that's a nice blank area. Now, on, you know, granted, the uniform should have looked like the same movie era at that point in time. So if they wanted to play with that, like set it after Next Gen to move it forward because Star Trek's about the future. And when we keep, you know, pick a prequel that f narrows what you can do. So. As so a why did they choose a prequel period? Do we know, is there something with the Klingon story that they feel is going to lead into where we first found the Klingons back in? I have no idea. I think we can answer that when the series is over, but yeah. I, I, 
I'm happy to watch it. I'm happy to pay for it. I'm ex- glad to see it. So, again, it's this mixed feeling of like, guys, why did you do that? I mean, like, I can get behind Michael Berman being, you know, Spock's adopted sister like that. I can live with that. But it'll just, like, make it fit. Yeah. And, or at least give even, because honestly, and again, though, this is where I don't pay that much attention to these sort of details. Um, those sort of things, and you're right, they are, they're not very good. They don't have a good continuity editor, I guess, for that. Even if they had done, done something where they had given some sort of kind of cheap explanation, like let's say for the first two episodes, it was very retro. Then when mm-hmm. he, she gets picked up by, you know, this dark science kind of thing well they could have all kinds of different technologies and kind of explain it away as well we're the super secret government science people so of course we have advanced technologies and different uniforms and different ships and all of that they should have, yeah they could have done that and they still might have make a nod to those true fans who notice these sort of things yeah and they could be part of section 31 and that could be the way that they explain by the time of ds9 that you have this ultra secret part of the Federation that seems to have more advanced technology. And when you get into the super secret engine that would have trans warp speed, which we know either ultimately doesn't work. Right. Because we've seen the future. Right. Or it does. And they keep it top secret and like limited to their special ops vessels. Right totally secret and doing black ops. It's so, classified through the rest of the Star Trek shows. And that sort of thing is like, wow, that's that's a large bit of information to swallow for us to accept that. So I get mixed feelings. Mixed feelings huh. as a geek who loves Star Trek. And like our generation, Star Trek is one of the important things for me. And I know it's very important to you as well. And yes, although you always show me that I'm like, wow, I do not pay enough attention. I am often a very uncritical observer (laughs) of movies and TV shows. Ah, It's fun. I like the characters. (laughs) That's fine. It's like we don't have to compete. I am like I actually I get really upset when people feel either their fandoms belittled for not being able to remember episode names or obscure characters. It's like, that's crap. You know, like you love something, you make a point to watch it, you get t-shirts. It's, it's like, okay, so you, you're not going to like do a great like trivia competition. It's, <laughs> and it's okay for people to like to go to that extreme of, of having that in-depth knowledge because this can mean different things to different people. And it's, it's okay if you have different levels of how you enjoy it. That is totally true. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we do enjoy in the show so far. Um, I have to say, I really like the, I guess she will be the main character, Michael Burnham. I think she is very intriguing, probably because she's the opposite of me and she does not talk much at all and keeps a lot inside and I'm always fascinated by characters like that Uh, she's engaging and I mean I've liked everything that I've seen so far I like they're trying something new something different yes Uh, Doug Jones's character Saru I really enjoy because it's different 
And Doug Jones has been many different characters in different movies, whether it's Abe Sapien and Hellboy to the gentleman and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's just... He's, <gasps> he was a gentleman? He was. So, I did not realize that. Yeah. So he's done lots, 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 and lots. And he's a neat guy. Uh, he was in one of my brother's uh, web series, uh, ah. uh, Research. So, and I, he, he and Gabe have interacted, and he, they're delightful. So cool. I, I really like... You know, when you go like he's a nice person and he's doing well, that's always a nice feeling to to see that. That is nice, and it is an interesting character. I kept trying to think like, who does he remind me from? Right, like if everyone has some kind of you know someone else in Star Trek that they remind you of or something. I mean, in some ways, he's actually a little bit like Bones as far as the kind of you know worried, fretful kind of you know maybe more empathetic though too um kind of character i don't know i couldn't think of who else he was reminding me of but there was something there that kept nagging at me i appreciate the fact that there might be echoes of different characters it's also different oh yes it is very different but you know you can't help but compare because you're in the star trek universe like who else from previous crews, you know, and yes, it may be forcing them in, but obviously you've got kind of the Vulcan sort of similarity there, right? I mean, in that case, pretty overt, um, you know, so that's where already clearly this new uh, Captain Lorca, right? The Jason Isaacs character, he's kind of the rule breaker, brash sort of, I can do what I want, sort of Kirksonian kind of character, Um so, arguably, if I'm going to really force this analogy, which I understand and I can see from your face, I'm forcing it. But if I'm going to force it, I would say that Captain George Jew then, George Jew, I can't say her name right, Michelle Yao, who's awesome, and I always love her. And I wish, by the way, spoiler alert, you better have seen the first three episodes. Um, I wish that they had not killed her, but I understand, whatever. But anyway, she, again, had kind of those, uh, the overtones of the um, – uh, Jean-Luc Picard, especially with teaching her number one and that kind of thing. Her relationship with Michael Burnham very much was that mentor-mentee kind of relationship that Picard had with number one, Riker. So anyway, so just yes, now that I've really ham-handed it. And I, I agree. I mean, you can see those echoes and it's, it's logical on how you could make <laughs> deductions. And, and like, and that's fair. And it's understandable that Star Trek fans are going to make comparisons to other Star Trek characters and and look for those homages, which is normal because there's always the same command structure. Right. And And kind of the stereotypes of who you have, kind of the brasque muscle, you know, brusque. Brat, what am I trying to say? Anyway, uh, you know, kind of guy who wants to just get into a fight every single time or just use brute force. The ones who are a little more concerned and hesitant, you do kind of have those sort of stereotypical sort of roles that you fill. Yeah, well, and this is different because they're in war. And That's which we, true. Which we have in Deep Space Nine. And okay. you, granted, granted, that was like season four by the, or five, because uh, it, it ends with, with a war and in you know, the Dominion War. So we've seen it before. And Deep Space Nine did a really good job of getting into how free societies deal with war and the impact that that can have on civil rights and how to respond to that 
And we'll Weren't be- they doing a lot of that during the Persian Gulf War? I wasn't really watching Deep Space Nine, but I thought I remember something about people talking about one of the Star Treks really kind of dealing with some of the civil rights issues that were going on, the free speech issues that were going on during the second Gulf War. It's interesting because that show was on in between conflicts. So it, it started in mm-hmm. ni- uh, 93. Oh, and, that's and the wrong so- one then. Yeah, so it goes through a time of peace, you know, in our history, relatively. I mean, like, we do have a quasi-war with Iraq during yeah. the Clinton years. And, you know, Enterprise, you know, responded to, you know, 9-11 with the, the Zindi conflict and what happened there with the attack that, you know, kills millions and cuts Florida, you know, in half and all kinds of bad things. So there's a lot. You know, that we've touched on in different series in different ways. But Deep Space Nine was interesting and almost visionary in comparison because it, it got into a really complex war and issues of terror with shape-shifting bad guys. Wow. And so you didn't know who was a bad guy. And, unless you were like in full-on open conflict. And in the paranoia that could sit in that is indicative of the war on terror 16 years in of how do we handle this without yeah. So Star Trek has been an excellent foil for getting into mm-hmm. those issues and we can see whether or not they really get into it in this one. Well, and then also, of course, and they've already sort of set this up too with, you know, the ongoing ethical debate about science, right? And I mean, uh, and he, what is it? Again, Captain Lorca reminded me a little bit of the collector, from the Marvel universe where he's got, he got that big creepy, looked like a huge mean cockroach, um, you know, at the end of the, sh- at the end of this show, he's got it there in his ship. So, um, and obviously Michael had concerns about what he was doing, this scientific research with the spores that he was doing. So, um, and that's always, I mean, that's part of what sci-fi has often done is kind of talking about, yes, what are the ethical boundaries of what we can study and do here? Exactly. And Especially science and war, sorry, too. It's different when it's kind of science and exploration, you know, when it's kind of like during peacetime. But, yeah, especially science and war, obviously, as we know, that can lead to very terrifying results. And what do you have to do to win the war? Because right. it's, it's nice to go, hey, we can debate this as opposed to being dead. And that's the rub <laughs> of, of that debate of uh, – what do we have to do to win versus do we destroy ourselves? You know, you know, we also have to have our conscience, but at the same time, we need to be able to win the war. And that's part of the motivation here of what's the cost of victory. Right. It is that balance. Yes. Which also then brings us to some of the legal issues. And the first one is the clear, clearly obvious issue of could a Vulcan adopt a human child? And is it in the best interests of a human child to be raised by Vulcans? And the issue of Sarek raising uh, Michael Burham after the Klingon terror attack of whatever year that, that took place. California law expressly prohibits discrimination based upon race, creed, religion, so you can't deny someone adoption rights either because of the race of the child or because of the adoptive parent because we favor adoption. We want children to be raised by people who love them, not by the state. So 
<clears throat> Vulcans don't overtly love. <laughs> like they do, but they don't talk about it. And for a child who's going to have serious PTSD issues of her parents being killed, would Vulcan be the right place for that? Right. It's the best interest of the child and is taken to, yeah, obviously it's kind of the cultural debate that sometimes comes up with certain adoptions taken to an extreme. Um, so, yeah. You, I mean, obviously there's so much backstory there. Like why, you know, again, it's kind of comes down to, well, if there were no other options, is that better than putting her in a government orphanage or something? Then, you know, yeah. So that is a debate. It's a debate. And I mean, Sarek, I don't know how much of his Katra ended up, you know, imprinted on Michael's. Like, there's that thing. It's like, that's a little okay. Did not see that one coming. Uh, but Sarek is married to Amanda. So there's that aspect of there's a human female in the house, which is good for a human female child. Uh, hopefully Vulcan would have counseling necessary for a child with PTSD as a know, that testing seemed to be the exact opposite of counseling for PTSD. <laughs> that True. was like shock exposure, uh, expose. Oh goodness. This shock therapy. Um, yeah, that was awful. And then we don't want you to talk about what happened. So just keep it to yourself bottled up inside. That would not be in the best interests of the child. No. So, and, it's, and on one level, you could say it doesn't work because as an adult, when Michael sees her captain killed, she abandons her plan to capture the Klingon, purposely switches, switches her phaser to kill, and kills the Klingon, making him the martyr she said that they should specifically not do. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's overly emotional and causes the war that she was supposed to stop so it would have been a more interesting story if she had captured him mm-hmm. it would have made it more complicated the mute well the mutiny i guess i said like, no you were mutiny this but yes it would have been interesting yeah that is a shame that's a very hollywood reaction whenever your mentor gets killed you always have to go into a rage and then just kill somebody it's I think it's a, a, a tad bad script writing because if she was raised by Vulcans and when we see her, you know, introduced to the what, Shinjo uh, in, in the beginning of the second episode with the flashback, she's very Vulcan from mm-hmm. the bald haircut to the charming personality <laughs> and, and for her to basically have a complete breakdown over seven years of being exposed to people, uh, human beings, that, that just seems weird. You know, that she should have kept herself together and not faltered. So that that's one of the issues I have from a storytelling perspective, that it goes, so the woman got emotional and murdered a guy? Well, except that if you want to talk about the PTSD and everything, I mean, just saying, you know, I do think it's a Hollywood kind of cliche thing that your mentor or somebody you love is like that dying, you just go into a blind rage and kill somebody. But if Captain Georgiou has basically become her mother figure, um, you know, and Klingon had actually killed her mother as a child. And then she sees a Klingon kill the captain in front of her. Probably, I would not actually describe that as over-emotional. I would actually describe that as a pretty accurate emotional response, unfortunately. Um, even when you're, you know, obviously in that situation, you're not supposed to respond like that. 
Um, but anyway, so I would say that it is certainly understandable in that case, given her background as her childhood. But also a lifetime of training and upbringing that just se- it seems radically inconsistent. It did. If I were her lawyer arguing, this is where we need our military lawyer, I'd be like, look, she never got treated for her PTSD. She was never allowed to deal with that. So, yes, those emotions had been there simmering under, I mean, because even with the Vulcans, right, their whole thing is the reason they have to impose all that logic is because they've got simmering emotions underneath it. So, you know, I would argue that, uh, yeah, this is clearly um, – something that she had been set up to fail in this kind of situation. Fair. I still think it's bad storytelling. (laughs) It would have been more interesting if they had actually captured the Klingon. Plus, then you get the cool dynamics with this, you know, Klingon martyr leader kind of thing in your uh, control. Yeah, and I think that would have been more interesting. Yes. But they missed that opportunity because she got all murdery instead. So there's that. That being said, the other issue is the court-martial at the end, which apparently she's not represented by counsel, and we have the dark, scary lights to make you know, the, the court-martial and all of their faces hidden. And you know, the, the punishment for dereliction of duty is death. So the fact she gets a life sentence is actually not bad, <laughs> comparatively speaking. Maybe it was a plea deal then. She took that to get the life yeah, and under today's uh, code of military justice, if you're dealing with dereliction of duty, uh, you can be executed for that. And then, you know, in one of the statutes, for this is for dereliction, it is, um, uh, shall be punished as a court-martial made uh, direct. And I think it's mutiny that's murder, or that's the death sentence. And it's like... Okay, I'm like, that's for her to get hard labor or whatever they were going to send her off to. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And it, it also makes sense from, you know, in the time of Starfleet and the Federation that they're not executing people. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think I would expect the Starfleet not to execute people. Yeah, it's just they don't. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, they, they've, they've changed. Yes. And. And, you know, and, you know, granted, we don't hear lots of stories about our own military executing people. And President Lincoln was really big on pardoning guys and, you know, for cowardice or whatever, you know, things that would have been, you know, an execution worthy offense. You know, the only thing that that Lincoln wouldn't pardon people from the death penalty was rape. Yeah, well, white people. There's a whole thing with a mass hanging in Minnesota and President Lincoln. That's a whole separate thing. It was a lot of soldiers. Huh? I'm talking about soldiers. Okay, yes. I just want to make clear that you're talking about soldiers when it comes to Lincoln and this. Yeah, yeah, it's because that's what you, a president, can pardon for a federal crime. Well, Uh, the Native American thing, though, too. He actually is on the hook for that. You can't get him off the hook for this mass hanging in Minnesota, so... I said to bring that up when we're talking about he's very good about pardoning people. I'm like, nah. But anyway, let's go on. I digress. Good to know. And then we have episode three, which we finally see Discovery. Now, I like the look of the ship. I do think it should have, you know, the sensor, um, it should have a sensor dish, not an array for, you know, the time period that we're in. And also the nacelle should be rounded not looking like, 
you know, squared, like you would have seen post the motion picture. So it, it's stuff like that, that bothers me. Yeah. But uh, I like it. You know, I like how she looks and I look forward to getting a model of it and putting it on my bookshelf <laughs> because that's how I roll. I like starships. It is. It is a good looking ship. I would agree with that. Um, it will be interesting, this whole science in the midst of war kind of angle that they're taking. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, we know Saru. We're getting to know a little bit about the mysterious Captain Lorca. Um, I like Cadet Tilly. So she's kind of, you know, the fun. And they like to have the scientists who are kind of socially clueless and likable and all of that. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting uh, that is it. I'm not sure the woman. Is she like the security officer maybe for Captain Lorca? Yeah. Yeah, right, the security I can't her name. I, I don't remember her name other than she was pretty kick-ass, and that was – it's like, you go, girl. Well, and she seems to know a little bit more about what's going on with whatever Captain Lorca has planned. So I'm like, that will be interesting. They're clearly doing something above top secret and coming up with a new way to fly. So, like, I get that, that this is – If that's what they're doing. I'm still not sure I believe anything he says, right? I, I I get weapons testing, but it does look like it's a new way to travel, and yeah. which would be a new way to fight, because if you can warp all over the place... Oh, yeah. I would say super speed's actually one of like the best superpowers. Yeah, so... Uh, but he also seems to be collecting things, so that's also a tad new. Picard had his fish, and he gets a giant killer cat thing, so... <laughs> Well, the part that I found interesting from a legal perspective, and this is from like, I need a military lawyer, was the fact that he basically, and I guess the government, that the Starfleet can give him the power he wants, but that he essentially, but it's not clear, did he commute to Michael's sentence? Pardon, Michael? Is this basically a prison work job? Like, as soon as he's done with her, does she go off to serve her life sentence? Um, I thought that was kind of one angle legally where I'm like, is she in this legal limbo? Like, is this actually kind of 13th Amendment, you know, kind of, um, you're going to, because you're a prisoner, we get to basically make you work without compensation? Well, there is civil drafting. And, and we have that. And, you know, this is different than that, right? I mean, I'm talking about it, her actual prison sentence. It is different than that, but we're, we're, I'm trying to connect the oh, dots okay. to try to have some legal system for you. you know, so, yeah, civilians can be drafted into the war effort, and it's for civil service, which is different than getting conscripted into the military, which is kind of a fascinating little turn and it's not something you see happen often, but it's like, okay, so is it a form of that? And and if he needs her expertise for the war effort, that's like where her prison sentence is going. And, it, and it's not like forced labor. It's not convict leasing. It's something radically different. And that would be an interesting issue to explore for a post. But it is kind of forced labor. I mean, I understand it's not physical labor, but she has no choice. He basically told her that even when she said she wanted to go serve her sentence. He said, you have no choice. You do have to work for me. And so that is my question is, is this basically 13th Amendment? I can make you do whatever work I essentially want as long as I don't violate a constitutional right. Um, or is this I'm commuting your sentence and 
and making you a Starfleet officer again or a Starfleet civil servant. I don't know. That's what was kind of interesting that they did not address. And that's where the lawyer and me, I feel like this is a very uncertain status. I would like some clarification. Does she need to file a W-9? Like, what's going on here? Um, so anyway, so that was a part that they may not address again, but to me it was definitely left hanging. I see where you're going with it. It's a good issue. We should research it. I think it's it could be a way of her serving her sentence because it's I don't know if commuting's the right word for it, but it's reassigned for, yeah. for what she was sentenced to, which I don't think would be inconsistent, and I don't think would violate the Thirteenth Amendment issue of indentured servitude because it's you know people can get sentenced to the chain gang, right? <laughs> and this isn't hard labor; it's actually quite nice in comparison except it's not she was forced to go down i mean i guess you could argue whether she was forced and risk her life so then if she dies doing this essentially prison labor i mean it actually you know it is not just her sitting in a nice little science lab calculating numbers but there's a difference between being ordered to go on a boarding party and then her deciding hey i'm going to play human bait in order to fight the giant monster that was true, but her, if she hadn't done that they all would have died true but that was her idea it wasn't like somebody ordered when she her was to, down there but putting her in that i don't know if there's a question actually i would imagine that there must be some court cases on can you send prisoners obviously that's a whole thing you can make prisoners do manual labor and different kinds of labor could you force a prisoner let's say to go down into a coal mine that is inherently unstable. Like they won't send, you know, regular workers will refuse to go down there kind of thing. Can you send them down to a situation that has a high risk of danger? I don't think they could do, do things basically converting prisoners to the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, they're not disposable because that sounds like the horrors of convict lease, uh, leasing. Yeah. That's taking place of like, we don't even need to feed them. We just send them out and work them to death. And then yeah. we rent another one. That was the horror of right. Jim Crow laws torturing people and just being evil. So it's, yeah. it's a different beast. And I, I say write a post on that because that's a very good issue to explore. All right. I may. I may. I will. It will take a while. <laughs> Hopefully they'll give me some more clues in upcoming episodes because to me that was just – I'm like, I always want to know what the legal status is right now. Do I have any independent rights um, or not? Well, it's, it's also different when you're in the military because – Well, that's true too. Yeah, you've already kind of given up some rights. Yeah. And that, and you have to follow lawful orders. Yeah. You don't have to follow an illegal order. So there's that as well. So it's, it's some good issues to explore there. And, you know, contact our buddy Thomas to get I his. I know. I got to talk to him. He'll probably have an answer for us. Is he a Star Trek fan or just a Star Wars fan? He likes Star Trek. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to talk to him about this at some point. So he does. Yeah. He, he, he's a well-rounded geek. So he's, he's <laughs> clearly loves Star Wars the most. Yes. So, and, and that's okay. So with that, any other thoughts on Discovery? No, I'd say this last episode got a bit dark for me, kind of very reminiscent of Alien. Um, I had to watch some light sitcoms afterwards to kind of get over the heavy. So I hope that it's not 
super dark every uh, episode. I do have a problem, no matter how good the show is, if it gets really dark all the time, I do have a problem with that. So I'm hoping there will be a little bit more levity. Some of the episodes aren't quite so dark and scary. We'll we'll see how they go. Because the original Star Trek could either have weighty issues, but, you know, virtually all of them with the, with a couple exceptions, you know, end with a lighthearted moment. Deep Space Nine had heavy stuff. Yeah. And Next Generation was all over the map, but usually optimistic. And, and that was consistent with the others as well. And maybe an exception of Enterprise during, you know, the Zindi conflict when they go into the Expanse. So there's a lot of room to work with. So it's a big galaxy. Lots to explore. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I am ecstatic to have Star Trek back. And while I might have my fanboy, you know, Klingons aren't purple moments. Uh, why are they purple? Why is they, I've seen an albino one, but why are they purple? Like that, that does bother me. Other than that, I'm ecstatic to have it back. We'll watch it weekly. And look forward to writing more about it. Sounds good. Me too. So with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. If you listen to us, take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. If you, you know, listen to us on Stitcher, leave Subscribe. A that helps. Please uh, yeah, rate us because we, we, we do. And then also we do enjoy feedback. If you would like to hear comments or ideas or anything like that, shoot them to us. So with that, Stay geeky, America. Stay geeky.